Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and presenters at Metatopia 2019. Episode 262, Design Considerations for Card Games. Presented by Tim Rodriguez and Beth Rimmels. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. It's Sunday. We're almost done. Everybody get some sleep last night? Yeah. Not me. I'm tired, but I got some sleep last Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, Cool. So this panel is design considerations in card games. Yes. And I guess we're just gonna talk about card games. This is small and intimate, which I think is really nice. Yeah. And we can. If you want, can you move forward? Make it a little easier. <laughs> make it a little easier for us to hear you. You can hear us because the microphone. But you know. Yeah. Oh. Be all friendly. It's a Looking around, I know some of you, and I know some of you have actively created card games already. Um, who has created a card game? Oh, awesome. Should, should we start with introducing ourselves? Sure. Oh, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> Hi, I'm tired. <laughs> Hi, I'm tired. Tired Rodriguez, that's my name. Uh, I'm Tim Rodriguez. I'm the co-owner of Galileo Games, and I kind of dabble in all manner of games. So card games, board games, uh role-playing games, a little bit of video games. Uh, I'm, my day job is now making interactive voice experiences, which is also games, uh, just kind of a little bit different beast. Um, but yeah, I'm in all sorts of stuff. My name's Beth Rimmels, my day job is marketing. Um, I'm also a game designer. I have been a gamer longer than I want to admit. Really, honestly, I'm not gonna admit to the number of years play all types of games and currently am about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through developing a card-based RPG. So card design is something that I've been not just looking at casually as I play all these games my entire life. Um, I've been doing deep dive into card design and how to make it easy and intuitive and serve the purpose and all of those things. Cool. So let's let's real quick jump back to like my initial questions. Like, Who's made a card game or is working on a card game actively right now? Almost all of you. That's awesome. Um, and maybe the rest of you are thinking about a card game or just curious about it. Um, so here's some of the things that I like best about working with cards. They're easy to prototype. Oh, they're so awesomely easy to prototype. You write some things on a little scrap of paper and stick it in a card sleeve. Now you've got a card. Done and done. Um, for, for slightly fancier stuff, I use an online tool called Paperize, which will let you transform a Google spreadsheet immediately into cards. It'll help you just template stuff out. It's rad. I did not know that. Oh, it's so good. What's it called? Oh. It's called Paperize. I'm totally plugging their Patreon because... I-Z-E? Yeah, P-A-P-E-R-I-Z-E uh, dot I-O, I think, is their website. And they've got a Patreon and a Discord. They're doing active development on it. And they basically work on a serverless function. So you just connect it up to your Google account. That's amazing. Card explosion. It's yeah. great. There's something called non as well? Yeah. Which means thanks for your 
if I remember right, Nandek is a Windows only program. I don't have Windows, so uh, I'm also aware of that. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, Paperize works on the web, so God. it's everywhere. And they're friends of mine, so. <laughs> but yeah, there's 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 actually a bunch of different templating tools. Nandek is one that I know a lot of people use. Uh, you can do things straight in InDesign if you are an InDesign nerd. Um, Daniel Solis has a lot of uh, cool instructions and templates and uh, uh, instructional videos on how to do uh, data field merge and templating. Um, I find InDesign to be a lot for doing it. It's great, but it's a lot. Um, yeah. So, yeah, aside from like being cheap, um, I think cards are really interesting. Like, what do you, what, like, so, what are some of the uh, what are some of the advantages and things that you find interesting when you're going into developing a card-based RPG? Well, the reason why I decided to do a card-based RPG because it wasn't the original plan. I started off designing a um, gritty but heavy mythical urban fantasy game, classic RPG would have the book, all that stuff, and there's a whole process I won't bore you with. But then it turned into a um, uh, multi-genre system um, that could be very flexible and intuitive and one of the ideas that I got was I went to it's been one of my passions all along is lowering the barrier to entry into the RPG market because there's still too many people out there who are like ew that stuff is weird but everybody plays pretend in their private lives you pretend if you were the boss of this company if you you know coach the, t the football team wherever it was everybody plays pretend so I want to grow the base of gamers. And to grow the base of gamers, you've got to lower that barrier to entry. Because even with the easiest game currently on the market, to someone who's never played an RPG before, that barrier to entry is still pretty high. Um, and what I literally got the idea for one day was, what if somebody could just deal out a character? Because again, just like everybody plays pretend or they want to admit it or not, everybody's played a card game at some time in your life. So they kind of get that concept of dealing out cards and the cards have some sort of meaning, even if they're not a hardcore gamer. So if I could translate that then to a skill system and again, make it very simple and easy and you know, hi, this is stealth. This is being able to shoot. This is being able to do this. That makes it a little easier for people to grasp. They don't have to read a 500 page book to get a concept of what's going on. And so that's why then this other project that I have that I will eventually go back to turned into a card-based RPG. And again, like I said, it's just so simple. If you're at a game table, it's like, what does that do again? Oh yeah, I can just flip it over. You don't have to spend, is it on page three, four, yes, you know, oh, that's referencing me, it's, ah. And too many RPGs do do that, you know. So cards, easy, simple, tangible, they're easy to grasp. If you're describing things properly and succinctly, you know, and if you color code them also too and do the graphic design well, then it's also, they can also very quickly pick up, oh, this does this, this is this type of card. Because like I said, most people have played a card game at some time in their lives. So, does that answer the question? <laughs> I think so. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm next curious, like, uh, how many folks are interested from kind of a board game perspective? It's probably most. It's probably yeah. most. Yeah. Uh, it looks like not all. Um, and maybe sort of from a role-playing game perspective? Oh, uh, we're okay. about, we're hey. about half and half. Wow. Like 
that's I am very pleasantly cool. surprised. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, yeah, so so from a board game perspective, mm-hmm. um, I think cards are interesting because they create interesting math to play with, right? Um, and I'm not really a math person. Like, I'm not good at it. <laughs> but, like, I have enough of my understanding of, like, probability and statistics um, to like be able to play with that um, right so like I think card games are interesting because we've had card games for a long long time um, and right you can and and iteration on classic card games is I think a really fruitful space to play in right you look at uh, like the um, astounding number of trick-taking games um, that exist currently, right? Like, how long does Bridge go back into other sort of ancestral games? Like, it's immense. And, like, Illimat is... Or, like, Illimat's uh, an amazing game. It's not really a trick-taking game, but, like, it's, it's a classic card game that has some clear ancestry back to, like, Renaissance Italy. Right? It's amazing. Like once you start looking up the history of like this modern game, oh, is actually like based on this other game, which is sort of a, a modern contemporary game, which is based on this other game that uses a completely de- different deck of cards that actually dates back to like you know early Italy, yeah. <laughs> which is rad. Um, so there's a really cool um, set of like foundational space to play in with card games. Um, you just start making some changes, and now you have a completely distinct and unique game um, that somebody else has done a lot of the work to do a lot of the mechanical development from. Yeah. So that's rad. Um, yeah. Do you have any questions for me? I'm curious. I don't. I think. I, I think yeah. I, I think it's. I think it's kind of cool to like ask questions <laughs> back and forth. Um, what do you think is the biggest mistake people make in designing cards? Because I know I have my answers, but where are yours? That's interesting. <laughs> what is the biggest mistake? Um, I think the biggest mistake is is kind of like a classic mistake in game design, where you're not thinking about what you want the player to do and how you incentivize the player to behave. And I think I think like that's it. Almost kind of feels like a cheap out answer, but like I think it's really prevalent and like it's really easy to do in card games because you can kind of really sort of easily test does my mechanic work and fine it might work, but like without being able to think of it as a player, am I incentivized to do this and is there a clear advantage for me to do one of these things versus another? Um, oh, and like. The other thing that I think is easy, uh, like an easy mistake, easy mistake to make in cards, is uh, how like not paying attention to how scaling works, right? Because if you have a deck of fifty-two cards, like these these numbers are really well known. Like if you double that and add one new card in, like where does that card fit in, right? I just need one more of these to like balance that out. Just like how much does that change your Percentages and how much does it change the percentages of everything else, right? Because all of it stacks on top of each other, right? Because you take one card out of a deck, now the entire deck's percentages for 
what you're looking at are different, right? And also, too, if all of a sudden if you're going from a um, 104 uh, card deck to 105, isn't that also going to affect your production? Uh, it depends on whether you're producing. I'm not. Okay. I don't. I don't think that producing is really a topic for. Okay. Like maybe it's a topic that we'll answer it in questions. Okay. I mean, ultimately, cards are super cheap to produce. I'm just, as, I'm, by I'm, comparing them to everything else, which I'm is just another reason I like I'm them. I'm just thinking in terms of what fits on my sheet because I come from a publishing background, mm -hmm. so I still always old newspaper days. Everything's like in factors of eight and stuff like yeah. that. So my brain goes to those yeah. sort of things. Yeah. Like honestly, the. In my experience, producing cards, it's not even worth thinking about, okay. right? Because cards are so cheap to produce. Mm -hmm. Like, 108 is kind of one of those standard size sheets, but maybe like that's not even true, okay. right? Like that's true for some sort of big sheets, but like 18s are an easy increment okay. for a lot of places to do. Yes, yeah, see, in I, my, my brain keeps going in the increments that you're supposed to do. Right, so. and, and like, the, the addition of an extra sheet is such a minimal cost We're just trying, yeah. that is almost inconsequential. So, Which is one of the other reasons why cards are popular. Yes. <laughs> we have a question right there. Yeah. So, uh, same thing, not from cost perspective, but from user experience or game perspective, how many cards are too much? I think it depends on what you're trying to do, right? Uh, because I don't, so, right, if you want to play with all of the decks of Ascension, which is, you know, yes. stacks of cards this big, yeah. right? Um, a game of Ascension is not, doesn't ever really feel like too much, even if you play with it. Um, until you you're trying cards. to get, hmm? yeah. start losing cards. Yeah, until you start losing cards, right? But so, right, like, how does it affect your probabilities of what you want to affect, uh, what you want to incentivize the player to do? how much you want cards to interact because like if you want to have interaction between two particular cards and you have this many in the deck and you have this many in the deck like that means a very different thing when your deck is only this big versus if your deck is this big right if you want it to be super rare and very uncommon maybe this is fine like a deck this size you're going to see it a lot more in a deck this size right um, yeah and i think it also goes to what your design goals are because if you're doing, if you're trying to design the next collectible card game, you've got a lot more flex to have a large deck. Um, if, however, you're trying to design the game that is the quick, easy game to like keep kids occupied for something, you may not want to have, you know, like particularly like going on a trip or something. You know, you're trying to do like the little travel game thing. You probably don't want a million cards in that because it's more stuff for them to lose. You know, so what what is your design goal for the game? Right. It's going to affect that. Yeah. Right. So, like, I think that, like, that, that, that really jumps back to that scalability, right? Space, right? Like, how much, how much does increasing the deck by fifty percent affect all your percentages? How much does uh, of of like the interactions you want cards to have? What is a ten percent increase in your deck size do? Like, is that still an acceptable sort of um, interaction for all of the different moving parts? Uh, is it not? Um, yeah. Quick question to the audience. Uh, of the people who were saying they were interested in doing cards for RPGs, 
Is it that you're doing a card-based RPG or cards that are a supplement to an RPG? Because those like, are two different like a things. Like mechanical system? Yeah, well, like, well like, like backstory cards versus an actual card-based RPG. So sure. one's a supplement to the RPG, another one is the RPG. Just to kind of get a sense of where you guys uh, are at. I, I'm doing so both. The first, I, I published an RPG, uh, you know, self-published, and I have cards as a supplement to that one. Mm -hmm. But I'm more, I, I decided, that, like, in, in you know, testing with the cards, which sort of came in late in the design process, people really like using the cards, so the second edition, I'm sort of designing around the cards being uh, core elements of the game. Yeah. Yeah. But you just do that with show of hands where people want to say, yeah, okay. Supplement for me, uh, thinking of having, you know, more traditional role-playing uh, elements mm -hmm. for the characters going around to different places and interacting with the world, and the cards are actually more about <coughs> codifying permanent things that they're establishing and gathering and things like that. Mm -hmm. Right, so you can play with your, like, your play space. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really cool way to do things. Right, you kind of can like make a map or something. Yeah, that, that was like, actually, I was thinking about also including tiles. Even. Yeah. I mean, to my mind, cards and tiles, when you're kind of working in that space, kind of the same thing. Yeah. Right? Right? Like, you figure out what that physical form is at some point, but like, cards are an easy way to prototype that. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've done a. Like I'm gonna say a card-based RPG, but like basically what it was is for character creation. Mm -hmm. It's like here, take three cards, and now you have a character. You can write a little bit to like really customize it out, but they're full of artwork, and but like all of the mechanical rules are pre-written so that you don't have to do that. So that's not backstory cards. So plug yourself. What is that? Right. Oh. So. <laughs> Thank you, marketing expert. <laughs> Who, by the way, sucks at doing this for herself, but I'm great right. at doing it for other people. So pl plug so, it So, yeah. <laughs> so, Omega Zone, which is a game that I made uh, a handful of years ago, uses a deck of cards, and it's a setting and character creation in basically a deck of cards, right? And then it runs on uh, Fate Accelerated. So, all of your character system stats are done up on these three cards, um, and uh, the game supports up to like six players at a time. Uh, has a bazillion different combinations. Um, and I, I, I really like the way that it streamlines character creation and doesn't get people bogged into like, what, what do you want to play? Let me go through lists and let me kind of make some decisions about that. And you're like, well, I've got this thing now. Now how do I make that into a character? And that's one of the things I love about cards and RPGs, even if it's not a card-based RPG per se, but as a supplement for an RPG or you know, add-on or whatever, is it can streamline so much stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I did play 4th edition D&D for very long, for a variety of reasons, but one of the things that I did like about it was they had the power decks, because that game had at-will abilities, plus encounter abilities, plus daily abilities, and all these other things. And it was, yeah, it was a lot to keep track of, and particularly if you came into 4th ed from prior iterations of D&D uh, where it was just, you know, you can do this or not, and you only really had to deal with that if you were a wizard of some kind. Um, but in fourth edition, even if you were just a plain vanilla fire, you had these special abilities that were could be a pain in the ass to keep track of. Cards made it so easy because they were color-coded, 
and then you could have them in front of you, and it's like, okay, I use that today. That one goes away, or you know, that one's being folded over for the you know, rest of the encounter. It just made everything so much easier, mm-hmm. you know. And even for other types of things in RPGs, it can just make the whether it's the character creation process easier or keeping track of things easier. It's a very nice handy adjunct, in my opinion. So. Yeah, for fifth ed, I really love the spellbook cards. The spellbook cards are great spellbook too. Spellbook cards are awesome. And I'm picking up here at the con the monster cards because it'll make my life so much easier if I'm going to something and say, hey, I know these monsters, I'm going to use these monsters, I'm just bringing these instead of the heavy book with me to something. I, I like anything that's compact. I had an idea for doing monster cards and then adding like templates, mm-hmm. kind of like as a peek out from underneath. Yeah. Um, so you could make like, oh, I've got a null, but now I want a vampire null. Well, here's how this is adjusted, and here's some rules for doing that. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I really wanted to do that 100 years ago. Well, I never got to it. <laughs> Too many ideas. Yeah. yeah that feel. But yeah, but that's the nice thing is that, you know, cards can be a very handy adjunct to things. And even in traditional, you know, board game market, again, like I... If a game does not come nowadays with a rule, you know, uh, uh, cheat sheet, I'm usually disappointed. Because when you're learning a new game, that just helps so much. It really can. Uh, What kinds of games are people interested in doing? Like when it comes to sort of traditional board games, like there's like deck building games, trick taking games, other sorts of things, like do you want to use cards to build a dynamic board? Like, what's what's interesting to you? I'm curious. Or what questions do you have about those things? All. All. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're all awesome, right? Yes. They're what all... What's your name? I'm working on one of each of those. One of each of those? Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. That's It's a lot of different things to learn, but there's a lot of that core math that is widely applicable to everything, except for, like, the dynamic board stuff. That's pretty straightforward. It's not a lot of that. Yeah. So I um, I base my game on Mealborn. Do you guys know the classic French card mm-hmm. Mealborn? So yeah, I've, I've been played in a million it. years, but yeah. So I I took those mechanics and then I I put a totally different spin on it. And when I released my beta, it was pretty much the same mechanics as Mealborn. <laughs> there's a part of the game, not to go down the rabbit hole, but there's a part of the game where you're stopped and you can't you can't keep moving until you draw remedy card and then a go card and it slowed it down when I was playtesting my beta version it was similarly kind of slow and plotting so in my newer version I I got that mechanic out to make it faster mm-hmm. and people liked it more it was faster to play and so not that I improved a classic game but I, I tried to just make it faster more playable and a mm-hmm. little bit more interesting in that way so yeah. Um, and it works. I think I think it works pretty well. I just thought of another thing that I've seen that is that can tend to be a mistake, mm-hmm. right? So there are there was a a swath of what I'll call judging games, right? Um, and this is like kind of like sort of in recent history roots back to apples to apples, mm-hmm. where a bunch of options are presented and somebody picks their favorite combination and explanation, right? And so there have been, a, like, I think a, a handful of Metatopias ago, I saw a dozen, like, different card judging games, like movie trivias and, like, uh, just all sorts of, all sorts of different themes. 
the thing that's difficult and interesting about judging games is how many cards you're using mm -hmm. and then what kind of stories you can tell with them. Um, and one of, one of the things that I've been seeing a little bit more recently than the last handful of years is like food-focused ones. And there are a number of different kinds of food focus. Like, let me take my favorite X number of cards where X is as many, up to as many as I have in my hand to make a menu to like offer it as a presentation. I've seen, like, and this is, this is really where that probability gets into, right? How do, you, how do you balance a reasonable set of cards to make a menu, right? Do you have ingredients as detailed down as like, you know, flakes of salt and watermelon and <coughs> like some sort of protein or like, what if you have a hand of all fruit, <laughs> right? You're like, I guess I'm making a fruit salad on top of steak. That's, <laughs> that's, that's awkward and weird. Um, and, and you have to balance the user experience of like having like giving players a way to collect a reasonable distribution of cards to build some interesting choices that kind of make sense with the tedium of like, okay, I'm drawing from seven different decks to make my exact specific thing. And maybe I can draw from as many decks as I want or as few decks as I want. And now I have a hand of like, I can make a five spice blend that I'm serving as a meal, right? Yeah. yeah. So, thinking about like I think I think thinking about the user experience of cards is a really fascinating thing, right? Because it's not just what the graphic design looks like. Um, speaking of graphic design, um, a right hand spread is very different from a left hand spread in terms of where you put the information on the cards. It's actually, in my experience and understanding, having talked to a number of like people. Like, a right-hand spread is always the right way to go, yeah. right? Left-handed people don't do a left-handed spread because the cards are all, enough cards are already done for a right-handed spread that they've just figured out ways to do it, to deal with it. So, plan for a right-handed spread. Speak. Uh, is the right-handed spread talking about the way the cards are layered on top of Yeah, the, the way the cards spread and layer. Yeah, so in general, like, the... Uh, the left hand of the card will peek out when you're fanning them in your hand. Right. Right. So information right. can be along this side, uh, and that's useful. But like, I had a friend who was left-handed who designed a game who designed it for a left-handed spread, and I like fanned the cards. I'm like, there's nothing on these cards. I can't see anything. Because <laughs> he had designed. Because he's like the only left-handed person I've ever met who automatically fanned cards the opposite way. Speaking of graphic design. Mind your font size. Oh man, yes. Yes, um, and also to edit, 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 because the two biggest mistakes I see in whether it's a card game, a board game, or cards as a supplement or as part of an RPG is trying to put too much written information on the card and for the size of the card, and so then they go down to a tiny typeface. Okay. First of all, you're now the cards are not necessarily ADA compliant. Not that you're probably going to have a problem with this because it's a card game you're opting in. But still, think about your players. People get older. People have eye issues. Hi, um, I'm Beth. I have low vision. 
because um, too many eye surgeries on this eye. Um, and it makes the difference in the user experience. Yeah. And a lot of times when it is so much information on a card, um, there's a way to rephrase and edit it down to be more succinct. Or iconify. Yeah, or iconify, let's say, or code it or something like that. But too often people just go with like the first or second pass of their phrasing and don't really think. And if you're trying to pack a lot of information, uh, word information onto a card, you can't waste a word. You really need to just keep playing with it till you get the absolute you know, clarity so then you don't have to go down to six point type. Um, I, I adore double exposure conventions, but the type size for that company is awful. <laughs> don't do that. De designing, <laughs> designing and writing for cards is a really good way to get better at condensing and clarifying your information, right? I'm Tim and I have pretty good vision, but like if I need to be able to read something that's in somebody that's else's tableau across the table and it's, you know, eight point font, like I can read eight point font when it's in my hand. That's not a big deal. Right. But I better be able to see the information that I need to access across the table. And that's the other trick is that if it is going to be a game where you have to be able to see at the table what other people are laying out, like I said, font size is crucial, but then also font type. That's where if you get into some of the fussy fonts, it's really hard to read. You know, so think about how it is you're doing it, what you can get away with in a card they're holding in their hand, or that's being used, like I said, like as a supplement to create a character RPG or something, you can get away with a little bit more than the card that you're putting down on a table amongst a whole bunch of other cards and everybody needs to see everything. Yeah. So you gotta think about the design. Also, way. if you're reading across the table, different colors help a lot too. Yes. Yeah. And by the way, there are uh, there are resources online for um, to help you figure out the colors you're using are good for people who are colorblind. Um, I don't remember the name of the websites offhand, but if you Google it, you'll find them. Yeah. Um, Photoshop good. has some built-in tools. There's a lot of like you can get apps for your phone yep. that automatically look at things. Yeah, because um, there was a game a while back, a board game that I demoed, and a fabulous board game. Absolutely loved it, but where I was demoing at the game store, we were playing right in front of the window. And when the sun was coming in a certain way, you couldn't tell the, uh, the green from the blue tiles. And I've seen that happen in cards all the time, because it just the way the light hit, they were just a little too close. You know? I, was, I was talking to my friend Brian at Gen Con last year. I'm like, have you seen this game Pantone? He's like, I literally can't play it. <laughs> <laughs> literally cannot play it. We were talking about Pantone in the, uh, in the marketing panel yesterday, mm. but yeah, yeah. it's... You know, so again, think about those things. For reference, Pantone is a game of color chips that you try and build into uh, essentially like pixelated ideas. So you're like, you could use like some red space that's separated with like a blue chip to represent Papa Smurf, right? With like a little bit of white peeking out. Like that's the idea. Yeah. And Pantone is the color institute that gives a numeric to every single color pretty much out there. So this way then, if you're ordering business cards, you don't just say peach. You say, I want six, seven, three. Yeah. So they get the exact shade of peach you want or whatever. Yeah. And those can be pre-mixed things, which is cool. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, uh, I have background in graphic design, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just 
the, I mean, it's all about the readability, and especially with a game where any kind of speed is important, mm -hmm. or seeing across the table is important. And right off the top of my head, I can think of a few games where the cards themselves are just not appropriately big enough mm -hmm. for what the task they're trying to do. Yeah. They've been shrinking cards down to, to a size that doesn't make them practical. No. Yeah. And if you're, and even a game where, like, code names, mm -hmm. You know, you think there's not a whole lot of information on that. Watch people play code names. They're all leaning on the table yep. over the cards. They yep. now make a larger version. And it's so much different because you can stay in your seat and see them. Yep. So card size appropriate for yep. what the task is. Yeah, right. you, you actually beat me to that was going to be my next point. About, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, yeah, no, because that's the thing. Everybody's trying to do like mini playing card size or smaller. And no, but then you also don't need to go up to jumbo tarot card size most right. most of the time. So yeah, maybe, standard, maybe once in a while. Standard U.S. playing cards are two and a half by three and a half inches, yeah. which is a little bit wider than a business card. Uh, bridge cards are a little bit closer to a bridge card, or a little bit closer to a business card, but have like an extra quarter inch of yeah, sort of landscape. Yeah, two and a quarter landscape size. Yeah, by three and a half. Do you have a question? Uh, well, I was just going to add something. I used yeah. to play with an individual that was heavily colorblind, mm -hmm. and what a lot of games do, which most people don't notice, is that there's a symbol somewhere on the card yeah. that you don't know is for colorblind people unless you play with somebody that is colorblind and they point it out. Yep. Um, and it's actually surprisingly easy to work into a game that has colors. Um, it's not as easy if you're doing things with meeples, but a lot of times you can find just slightly different shapes to send that signal so that if somebody has trouble identifying the difference between the shades, um, you're in good shape. Yeah. yeah the color could just have a pattern in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do with my game because basically the cards for my game are going to be um, colors down here mean one thing, colors over here mean something else. I'm going to try to avoid overlapping colors. But again, to kind of color code it, but that there will be a color on color or something pattern in there as well for people who are colorblind. Yeah. Um, because those, those little things make a difference in the inclusivity of your game, which in turn helps your sales, besides right. gendering goodwill, you know. What's, like, what's the, the statistic for how many men in particular are colorblind? It's like... Oh, I'm not sure, but it's not a small number. Speaking as someone who is colorblind, yeah. uh, for men, it's 10%. It's 10%. And it's, I believe, a third percent for women. Yes. Globally, about 5% of the population, so 1 in 20 people, yeah. is, can be colorblind. Right. Yeah. And that's just natural colorblind. That's not like if there was any kind of trauma or other eye issues later yeah, on. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, which happens. You yeah. know. So, you know, try to think about that because it's only going to help your sales. Or at the very least, it's you won't lose sales from including that. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, my other pet peeve with cards, um, this is more for, like I say again, the kind of the RPG supplement type card as opposed to a card game. Um, if there's no reason to hide what you have, use the other side of the card. Um, it's different if it's like classic playing cards or Ascension or whatever where you are trying to hide what's in your hand. Obviously, then the back of the card is going to be all uniform. But if it's something informational, um, or like I said, it's a supplement for something or whatever, don't just slap a logo on the back side of that card. Use that for information somehow. Then you don't necessarily have to go to the tiny typeface. Yeah, I, I did exactly that on my, the supplements for my, for my RPG. Um, like I, I had 
there, there are some, some cases where there's one player that would have you know, this card and then this card, and they wouldn't actually be used at the same time. Um, but I, so, so I figured, or sometimes they would be. But what I ended up doing was I would have two copies of the same card, but just one on the front, one on the back. So if you did have, you know, two of the two of the same, you know, two two players who need, need the same type of card, then you can just split that pair up right. instead. So there's a, a recommendation that I'm totally cribbing from Daniel Sellis uh, that he discovered and sort of wrote about when he was dis uh, developing one of his games that was a, like a space political game. Um, when you're writing instruction cards, and he did a lot of work to just create straight up just drive-through RPG or drive-through cards rather, uh, standalone games. You just got shipped some cards and the instructions are on cards. Um, have the, uh, the instructions written out in prose on one side and have examples of that on the other side yeah, so good. you're not hiding information as you go, which is kind of the one danger of using double-sided cards, right. right? If you have one card out, the information on the back of that card is hidden, right? It's not that it's not there, it's that you might forget to flip it over and check, at which point the other information becomes hidden. But if it's basically the same information in two different forms, you're in actually great shape. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a good point. If you are using both sides, you gotta be careful of what does go on the other side. But I've seen like, what we talk about like with monster cards. I've seen so many uh, where they're for GM purposes only. And I guess maybe it makes sense if you're not using a screen or something, but they have That's the a piece. Panel. Yeah, but they have a piece of art, and then they're trying to cram in ten bazillion, you know, piece of information underneath. And it's like, just use the back of the card. You know, my players are not going to see that deck unless I let them see it. So put the art on one side and the info on the other. You know, make my life easier instead of trying to cram it all into four point type. Yeah, I think usually about six six point is about the minimum. That's realistically readable when you're holding something in front of your face. Whoa. My wife's in magazine publishing, like, you know, like I have, you know, I don't, like I'm not a graphic designer myself, but like that's that's kind of like the minimum. Yeah, like see, I, I super think, absolute minimum. It's not really the reasonable average size you should go to. Yeah, see I'd say really minimum would be like eight point, you know. I mean, can you do six maybe? And it, it's context. That, realize I'm doing the absolute minimum. Yes, yeah. yes, and that's the important piece of that. Yeah, because like they, they are using six point in the programs. Yeah. Yeah, and that's. But like that's, like. That's also density though. Yeah, and that but like that's that's yeah that's that's an information density piece yeah. right the like six point is really useful for things like credits, right? Oh this yeah. This artwork is by or oh, like this like other that, piece yeah. of information that is. Stuff you don't need to read on. Yeah, right. that you don't necessarily need to read on a regular basis. It's okay to do this. But like, my card text should be like 10 point font. Yeah. <laughs> like 8 to 10 yeah. uh, without. And if it's a numerical value or a pip or something like that, it can't be too big. Yeah. Right, right. It really can't. I mean, I saw that one just, just yesterday where someone uh, essentially put uh, like a, the painting cards, the, a, a king like, mm -hmm. all right? And and in doing that, they had the pit practically disappear. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it makes, what was this one? And, and making the playability a, a very different thing. Yeah. 
you can tell I have a face card because I'm having to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate playing uh, with uh, the one deck of cards that Darren uses because um, they're uh, Day of the Dead themed, and the clubs and the spades at a distance to me look exactly the same. I can't tell the difference. If, yeah. if it's not in my hand, I can't tell the difference. Yeah, no, those, those are... Those are hard. I, I want to buy the, my new set of cards. <laughs> I gave him that set of cards. <laughs> I hate you too. Uh, I, mean, I, understand why he, I understand why he loves them, but it's like, yeah, no, like the the, the, the usability on those cards is not good. Yeah, like I think they're really gorgeous, and I have another. They are gorgeous. Daggers, but they're like, absolutely they're, gorgeous. They're not the worst I've seen, though. No, that's true. <sighs> I have like some minimalist playing cards, and it's like this is triangles, and it's like. An upside down triangle versus a right side up triangle, which like okay. Yeah, at the distance, forget that, man. Oh man. And the good right. thing is, you never play with cards that are get turned the other way, so that's not confusing at all. Yeah, because like <laughs> no cards are facing different ways. I'm like, wait, which? Um, question. Uh, just throwing another thing out there. Yeah. Uh, Bunch. I'm pretty sure it was Bunch on Games did a uh, contest recently, where the design space was 18 identical cards. And huh. interesting. the finalists for that are like a master class in doing some very interesting stuff with a very limited design space, Absolutely. Uh, particularly with cards. And it's a great thing to check out. <laughs> I love the stuff that Button Chai is doing mm -hmm. with cards because it's like, like you said, it's a master class in creative constraints, yeah. right? How complex a game, how complex and interesting a game can you make with 18 cards, right? You've got 36 faces. <laughs> And some instructions. What do you do, right? Do you make some interesting strategy games? Like, do you make things that overlay each other? And uh, do you make things that involve secret information? Do you involve dexterity? Like, and all of these things have been done and done with interesting things, like results, right? Like, what's your shuffling look like um, with that few cards? Like, what do those probabilities become? because um, all those percentage numbers are actually pretty high at just 18 cards. <laughs> Which also, kind of circling back to something else we said before, and this may be in some ways trivial, but it's going to impact your players. Um, when you're talking the giant-sized decks, think about the shuffleability as well. Oh my god. Even I can't well shuffle like yeah. large things. And I have really big hands. Yeah, I mean, I've got like very long fingers, so I normally can, but there's stuff that strains. And if the deck's just too thick, you just can't. It just physically won't. Um, and then you don't necessarily get as good as shuffle. And I'm not saying that, look, if your game really needs that many cards, fine, do it. But just realize the player impact in like trying to shuffle and stuff it's, like it's that. It's usability, yeah. right? Like it comes down to usability, right? And I think that um, ergonomics and usability design are like some of the most interesting things about dealing with cards because mm -hmm. you get to see a lot of different manifestations of that that is then useful in almost everything else you'll yep. do. And also, too, shuffleability gets hard when the card gets too small. Cards that are like that big oh, God, are, because there's no bend. There's just not enough bend. Um, and then if people don't like to bend things, because there are people who like have like, you know, like, like I'll shuffle these. They're like, do not riffle shuffle that. I'm like, okay, it's your game. Deal. I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't want to be doing this. Yeah. <sighs> like, I don't think I've ever run into anybody who demands that, but... Yeah, it's... Yeah. Like, certainly magic players. But luckily you don't That's shuffle true. each other's decks, yeah. Yeah. right? 
but like you know somebody who got a brand new board game was like do not riffle shuffle that as I was like okay <laughs> <laughs> cards are interesting I think yeah. cards are like I could talk about cards all the time. <laughs> yeah. well because they, they're tactile I, that's why like I said I love uh, cards in the RPG space because again it's, some, it's something physical you can hold on to you can do stuff with you can rearrange them in ways that you can't with the book you know what we haven't even touched on what? materials oh yes 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 oh my god so Atlas Games in particular is really interested in using cool materials for card games mm -hmm. gloom you know Gloom? Oh yeah, Gloom. Gloom, transparent cards, where you're literally stacking cards on top of each other to like uh, reveal and hide icons. It's cool as hell, right? And then it's a, that's a storytelling game. I What's think that called? one's rad. Gloom. 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 Yeah, Gloom's Gloom is Gloom's Gloom is one of those evergreen games that came out uh, probably close to 15 years ago. Yeah, about that. Yeah, and and continues to have like be a seller through only like different three different incarnations. And if you're interested in card games, I would definitely recommend playing Gloom at least once because the translucency isn't just a gimmick, it actually has a mechanical It's yeah, it's a mechanical game. integration into the game. So it's it's very clever. You should at least try it once to see how the game works because it's yeah. Yeah. So earlier uh, you mentioned that when you're thinking of card games, do not think about the cost because cards are really uh, cost efficient to produce. What about these transparent cards? Are they still cheap? That's, that is going to cost more. That, much, that, that number is different, but the value for doing a really cool thing that is almost certainly going to be unique in the industry is worth it, right? So, like, it's not something to not know about, but when you're designing a game, I would not put it as, like, I would not, I never put cost as my primary concern. Mm -hmm. Like, until I stick my publisher hat on and say, Okay, but also that's gonna like okay, but but that's not a game design question, right? Yeah, like I, would, I wouldn't bother. Think, like I don't think yeah, you need okay. to think about it. Well, see, I, see, I would say that I wouldn't necessarily go for translucent cards just for the sake of translucent cards because it's not necessarily going to make a difference versus the the price and trying to keep within certain constraints. And honestly, but, the, those plastic cards are little bit of a very different beast to shuffle. Yeah, they, they are a pain to shuffle. Yeah. But for something like Gloom, where it is tied into the mechanics of the game and what you're doing, it's invaluable. Absolutely. So it's why are you doing it, where are you doing it? Yeah. So. Right. Has anyone tried to use the transparency as an alternative for having, again, I'm thinking tiles, for having differently shaped things? So that there's a more standard size for the cards, but, that, but in actuality they take up different different physical space. Yeah. So Mystic Veil is a board game that, you, you were thinking of exactly that, right? <laughs> Mystic Veil is a card game that's kind of a deck building game that includes a bunch of sleeves and cards with like different slots. So I can... So you can put the sleeve in. Uh, so, so I have a fixed deck size, but I can improve my cards by uh, buying a card that has a slot that I don't already have and sticking it into that card sleeve. So. I start with one, and then I upgrade it to two slots, and then I have to get a really specific third slot uh, ability to like make kind of the maximum value out of that card. And I think that's a really cool idea. It's pretty rad. So on the same subject, uh, are there places you'd recommend for looking for these type of, of specialty materials 
one of the things I'm looking for is I want uh, cards that will be written on mm -hmm. and, uh, and drawn upon. Is the idea that you're looking as a kind of a publisher who's looking to source materials, or like as a designer who needs to try and find something to play with? The latter. the latter first, but both. The latter first, but both. And when you say write one, write one and erase, or write one and leave it, because that's the difference in, in finishes. I'm thinking mine would involve colors, so uh, so either or. My my first step would be to just say, just start with paper, mm -hmm. like just start with like trashable paper, right? Right. Um, well, what I'm wondering is, are there resources people you do? Uh, printers that you send oh. to or recommend or where to look for? So, so like, once you kind of know what you're looking for um, and kind of are further along in a game design process, um, I don't know everything about, like, all of the cool printing stuff that's out there, um, but certainly there's dry erase finishes, like you were yep. starting to say, um, and you can do that. Like, that's pretty easy to... And there's and I, I forgot where, but I picked up samples one time from a couple different um, card game man, uh, card manufacturers, and it was literally like a little sample pack of this is our this thickness, this is our that thickness, mm -hmm. this is our black core, you know, centers. Here which, are different finishes. Yeah. And the different finishes are, are kind of what you're going to want to look at. Right. Right. Like something that's glossy will usually be more uh, like dry erase resilient. Um, is it satin finish? Is it matte finish? Is it yeah? Uh, like what's yeah. the texture? I think the ultraviolet linen finish from Game Crafter works well with dry erase. For yeah. Instance. Yeah. That's that's a, that's great information. I didn't have that specifically. Yeah. I know Daniel Solis again because yeah. he has written a ton of information. Just go look him up and read yeah. everything. And he, uh, Daniel Solis, S O L I S. And he has a YouTube channel too. He has a YouTube channel. He provide he has provided so much valuable information to particularly card game designers that you should just like throw him a couple bucks on his Patreon. Yeah, he's amazingly like, talented and incredibly generous with his information. Yeah, he's uh, an art director. Um, he's done, he did the logo and work, some of the work for Backstory Cards. Oh, okay, I yeah. didn't know that. Uh, yeah, and he did some great stuff. Um, but yeah, like, and once you start going towards manufacture, you, uh, like, like we said, you can get some samples do some tests on finish, right? Like literally order like a couple of different samples, try things, try different like ways of like leaving that dry erase on. Um, and Daniel Silas has done some of this and presented some of it. Like I think it was all focused on like the drive-through cards uh, product. Yeah, and then I've looked online, they've had very limited, the places that specialize in making decks seem very limited in material choices. There, there are others out there. I'm completely blanking on all the names, um, but no, there are actually at least a, f a few out there. Because like I said, I picked up samples uh, one time at a trade show. Yeah. Um, and and there's a lot of factors to look into. Because like I said, it's finish, obviously, card size, um, material. the material and thickness, and what the core is. Because if you want something that is 100% absolutely opaque, a lot of times they refer to it as the black core. Yeah. Black. Um, versus something else where that's less important, but then other things it's going to, how much does the finish wear? Um, yeah. So there's a lot of factors to take into account. And yeah. how does it shuffle? Because again, that goes to the thickness. Yeah, these are, these are questions to like start asking 
right? Either either sort of like the manufacturer or like a print production partner. I've historically used a print production partner. Uh, Ad Magic is based here in New Jersey. Uh, Ad Magic, A D M A G I C, and you can call them up and start getting quotes, and like they're really knowledgeable and have access to a lot of different manufacturers and printers. Um, yeah, there's and there's and there's way more than I know about. Uh, I'm blanking on in the, terms of possibilities. Yeah, I'm blanking on the name of it, but there's also a. Um, card production company based in Texas. Because um, right now, going to Games, is it? I don't think so. Um, There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, but the main thing is, uh, my point is like right now, anything produced in China, you're gonna be dealing with tariffs, you know. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a whole separate topic. <laughs> yeah, but but th but there are a lot of sources out there, you just gotta do some research. Yeah. Anybody says you have to print, you know, X place now, there's options. Yeah, there's a lot of options. Um, especially for like straight paper goods. Uh, do you have? A, do you have a uh, I was going to ask if you had any ideas for if you wanted if you wanted to say make a game that had a similar mechanic to Bloom. How would you prototype that? It seems really difficult. Mm. Uh, there are. You might have to go to more like of a craft store or something. Um, but there are places where you can get pla like plastic sheets and just kind of cut them up and do. You know, so yeah, you, you like, and then print out the the actual opaque yeah. parts, and then just start them on. Yeah. yeah, like hole punchers, hole punchers on just like clear sleeves. Yeah, right? that's too. Like just like like hole punch your paper in kind of the way you need it to be, slide it into a clear sleeve, and now you've got a faked version of that. Yeah, it's it's a little trickier to prototype that stuff, but you yeah, totally it's can. totally tricky. Or you can just draw on it, draw on that clear sleeve. Any other questions? Because we're starting to run low on time. So. Yeah, we are. We are at five minutes, so I'd like two or three more questions. If nobody else has a question, I ask you, what are typical runs you guys do? Uh, I find that five hundred is my super low end for something I know I can sell half of immediately. Like, if I have a Kickstarter that says we have definitely ordered two hundred fifty copies, I'm not touching more than five hundred because while uh, bigger runs actually start making a little bit more sense, um, the, the overhead of keeping 750 copies around when that market has not necessarily been proven to that degree is a bigger risk than I want to take. Um, and even then, 500 is a lot, and I really think hard about doing print-on-demand. Print-on-demand? Meaning you'd consider it. I, I, oh, absolutely. Like, print on demand for anything less than 250, for sure, is almost a certainty. Um, but 500 is kind of my minimum, really low end, really, like, it turns out this didn't do as well as I wanted. I want a couple of extra, and I've more or less paid for it, at, at, if I'm pricing things right. What about packaging? In terms of what? Standard card box or the bigger boxes for your game? Depends. That, in part, that depends on your price point and what you're looking for with the game, right? Um, I love tuck boxes. Uh, tuck boxes are not the greatest things in the world as, as far as uh, a product perspective goes. Um, if it's a standalone sort of table game, a bigger box is going to be a better product. 
just kind of flat out. And putting on my a little bit of my marketing hat for a second, think about where and how and the type of game and how it's going to sell, because if it's a game that's going to come in under twenty bucks, especially if somehow you can get under fifteen, um, and it's a certain type of game, you might want it in the the box with the little hang. Um, hang tags. Hang tags, thank you. Yeah. Um, not enough caffeine yet today. Um, because then it might be impulse buy at a game store cash reg- I mean, a register. But, uh, but for the for other games, that is not going to be appropriate. That pretty much needs to be like a $10 or less though. Yeah, okay. Right? So I've heard up to 19 That's real hard to make happen. Okay. Right? Like, as, as far as the tech box goes, right? Like, mm-hmm. so Backstory Cards goes for 15 mm-hmm. But it's also a really weird special case. Like, that has a... Uh, a tuck box with a hang tag built in, mm-hmm. so like a paper hang tag. Yeah. Um, $15 is a reasonably decent price point for that, right. um, but it's also an RPG supplement right. where people are looking to spend money on different kinds of things. Like it's not and a box that has to be shown. Right. So right. Yeah, right. so yeah, it extends their ability to use RPGs and it absolutely needs to be portable and it doesn't have to be showing. Right, so like, there's a lot of aspects that go into that. And I think we're basically at time. It's yeah, like we got safe. two minutes, and that's Thank enough time to get out of here. Thank, Thank you, so you much. guys so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being an awesome extra voice. Yeah, no, this 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 was fun. I love talking about cards. I just. This was awesome.